name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody and thank you for joining the latest edition of Talking Bat and we have one amazing guest for you that we're going to be talking about with uh, today, uh, Emeritus Professor Brock Fenton. How are you doing Brock? I'm fine and you? Yeah, not too bad at all, not too bad at all. I was totally cock-a-hoop when uh, you agreed to do this talking back interview. So I just want to say a thousand thank yous, okay? <laughs> okay, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Yeah, and uh, if, if you're watching this and you don't know who Brock Fenton is, um, I think you need to go onto the internet and maybe Google the name. And as you're going to find out over the next hour or so, uh, had a massive, massive influence on our knowledge about bats. Uh, he's... He's an educator, a teacher, a researcher, an author, goodness knows, and lots more. How would you describe yourself, Brock? Uh, I'm just a bat biologist, I guess. I've been that way for a long time. It's a terminal affliction, I suspect. Right. No, just to be clear, you said a bat biologist. They are not bat a bat biologist. Yeah, yeah a don't bat know. Bat. Well, it could be bad too, but <laughs> it's mostly bat. The ones with wings, not baseball bats or cricket bats. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're based in Canada, on to, sorry, on Ontario. Yeah, Ontario, Canada. sorry. Yeah. It's the province um, of Ontario. Yeah. So um, here we are. You're just in amongst the Great Lakes. Is that what you call it? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and what's the weather like there at this time of year? It'd be summer at the moment, I would imagine. Summer, hot and sticky. It's been, um, we've had some good rain, but we need some more rain. But everyone always wants more rain, almost everybody. Okay, okay. And what would your typical bats be where you're based? If you went out tonight with a bat detector, what's the slam dunk number one thing you would expect to record? Okay, so I'm in a, an urban situation and the bats here are mainly big brown bats. Okay. Um, the, and big brown bats are one of nine, eight, of eight species of bats that occur in Ontario. Okay. Um, three of them are thought to go south for the winter, but okay. we don't know where. Um, big brown bats are very local. They don't seem to go very far, as far as we can tell. And the other bats may go north for the winter to find a place to hibernate, uh, or they may go south, but for the most part, we don't know where they go. Wow, wow. And big brown bat, I think I'm right in saying that's an Aptesicus species, is that that's correct? That's right, Aptesicus fuscus, and it's about a 15 to 20 gram bat. It's okay. a common house bat in much of Canada. So if people have bats in their house, it's likely a big brown bat. Okay. When they get out of the city, there'll be other bats as well. But there's some bats, red bats, East, Eastern red bats, it is hoary bats, and silver-haired bats you virtually never find in houses. Okay. Now I've said that, of course, everyone will find one, but mostly you don't. <laughs> yeah, you'll start getting emails. <laughs> That's correct, yes. Uh -huh. Brilliant. Now I was doing some, uh, I was doing some uh, stalking of you on the internet and uh, I was finding various ways that people describe you and you describe yourself in terms of your research. And I think, well, I think this kind of summed up quite nicely the things I was reading. Um, 
does this about cover it or is it too simplistic to know the statement about so i started being interested in just finding bats and getting some idea of where they went and we did that by putting bird bands on them and the technology changed so we changed and then i figured out that you could start traveling in the days before covid so i'm happy to go almost anywhere in the world and, and study bats and whenever i've had an opportunity i try to take it and this has been very rewarding um i guess something you could say about bats and i think it was donald griffin uh, that said it that bats are the gift that keeps on giving you know, every time, or Gr Griffin referred to the echolocation as a magic well, because yeah. whenever you went to get to the well, there was always something else to find. Yeah. And that was true back in 1963 when I first went into a bat cave. And it's just as true today, if not more true, because we have more technology that allows us to find things, to probe the secrets of bats is a nice way to put it. Yeah, and as you've already said, um, even for some of the species that are regularly occurring in your area, uh, something is, when I say something as simple, it's not simple, but something as uh, elementary, perhaps a better word, as to where do they go in the winter? You know, you've already said, you know, you've got species and yeah. you're not quite sure what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. So in the world, there are about 1,400 different species of bats. And I suspect that we don't know where more than half of them spend the day. And that's because bats make a living by not being findable during the day. And you go for a walk in the woods and look for bats in the summer. Yeah, you don't usually see them. If you're in the right part of the tropics, you may see big bats, flying foxes, hanging in trees. But mostly, we don't know where they go. And when you I mean, one of the other things about bats that's astonishing to people is how tiny they are. Smallest bat in the world weighs two grams. You know, two grams is the same as a 10 cent a dime in Canada, yeah. two, you know, two, two grams. Yeah. Little brown bats, which are a common species here, run about eight grams. Yeah. And big brown bats are about twice that size, but our largest bats are hoary bats and they weigh about 30 grams. Okay. The largest yeah. bats in the world are over 1200 grams. Yeah. And that's big, but it's, it's big by bat standards, but it's small by mammal standards. It's not as big as your dog or your cat, let alone your elephant, right? So yeah, it's uh, yeah. bats are small animals. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really fascinating, really fascinating. I just want to pick up on something there because yep. you've introduced another species there, which is called little brown bat. Yeah, that's a totally different bat to the big brown bat. Is that's that right. a, is that a myotis species? I that's myotis. It's, it's, a, a, it's a different yeah. genus. Yeah. And again, one of the problems we have with bats is they have scientific names and the scientific names allow you to communicate with more precision. Yeah. Little brown bat, anywhere in Canada where there's a little bat, they can call it a little brown bat if it's bat in color. So <laughs> yeah. brown in color. So yeah. the common names and the scientific names are a challenge to communication. So you try not to use scientific names if you can avoid it when you're speaking to people for whom scientific names are weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about being understood, I suppose, by as wide an audience as possible. Unless you don't want them to understand you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is true of some people. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can relate to that totally. <laughs> Hi, 
If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. Right, so here is a little bit of a summary of uh, some of your key achievements. Uh, goodness, over 250 academic papers. You've authored, co-authored numerous books, some of which we're going to mention shortly. Yep. Uh, you've got various other uh, awards and fellowships, etc. here mentioned. Uh, to date, is there anything in your mind that... It might be a bit of research or it might be one of these awards or positions or whatever. Is there anything in particular that at the time you said, wow, uh, that was hugely worth achieving or attaining? Uh, now that so, would be very, very difficult to narrow that down. But I just wonder what are you most what are you most fond of or proud of or whatever you want to describe it as? I'm I'm honored by all of these things and I think that they, they just, it's part of your career. This is what you do. And a lot of people that work in universities as academics don't think teaching is so important. I think teaching is very important, but I think research is important and service is important as well. If I had to pick something that I'm particularly pleased about, I started doing field work probably in the early 60s, and I found that then I was teaching field courses, which took undergraduate course students out into the bush, wherever that was. Yeah. And I quickly learned that in that situation, people learn a lot because they're not, they don't have anything to prove. And so we started, we go to various exotic places to do field work, Africa, New Guinea, Australia, all over the place. and. I guess we were at a dinner honoring, celebrating the life of Donald Griffin. This was in 2000, I think about, I'm not sure of the exact year, can't remember it. And one of my colleagues was saying he and his fly, his neurobiology colleagues would go to a dude ranch in Wyoming every year for a week and just, turns out what they're really into was fly fishing, but they'd go and talk shop too. Okay. So I thought that was a good idea. and. There was a site I used in Belize that I was particularly fond of. So I thought, gee, why would you go to Wyoming if you could go to this place in Belize? So in 2007, a group of about 25 of us went there for a week and we just sat around and talked bats or caught bats or did whatever we were going to do. And this became a no host, like everybody pays their own way, no agenda. There's no posters, there's no papers, there's no meetings, agenda. Okay, and yeah. so we did our last, our 15th one, the last week of April, the first week of May this year. And I think we had 65 or 70 people. Wow. We filled the lodge. And it, what's wonderful about it is you just have an opportunity to talk shop with all these different people. So there's undergraduate students. Some, people's, some people bring their kids. There's retired people. There's just about everything. And in that milieu, is very, it promotes communication, it promotes science, but it's also, there's no boss. And yeah. because everybody's paying their own way, you know, nobody gets a free ride. So 
to me, that's pretty important because we've been doing that, as I say, this is 15 years. We've had over 250 people do that. Okay. And so it's a very interesting way to watch undergraduate students learn how to deal with baths, how graduate students get ideas, everybody gets ideas. So that's a good use of time. And I find it's a better use of time than going to scientific conferences as much as I love them. Because at a scientific conference, you never have time for anything. You like a Victorian lady with your dance card, lunch, breakfast, dinner, who yeah. you're going to sit down with and it only have one chance at it. Whereas when you're somewhere for two weeks, man, you can spend a lot of time with people and learn a lot. Yeah. And they so I spend, think, yeah, they it's spend that, a lot it's, of time. With, yeah. They spend a lot reaching, of time with each other and being inspired right. and enthused and educated. And reaching out. And so yeah. to me, that's sort of what science is, but it's not just science. Of course, it's all realms of scientific or rather research endeavor because you're really discovering or talking about new things and i think that's very important yeah and do you see yourself continuing to do this belize trip going forward or well we're <laughs> there's two things converging here yeah. well i mean right now it's hard to go anywhere in an airplane without spending yeah. an extra day or two or three waiting for your luggage or anything else but putting that aside we've got a date pick for our session in um, 2023 We've already, it's already full. I mean, people have signed it up full already. Wow. Um, I think we'll keep going as long as there's bats and people have the interest. Yeah, yeah. Sounds absolutely amazing. It's summer kid for bat bio, summer camp for bat biologists. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this picture yeah, shows This is me. a picture you sent yeah. there. And I thought, okay, what's going on here? Obviously, you're about to get into a canoe or whatever. Right. Yeah. My yeah. dad and I are going on a canoe trip. I think I was yeah. six years old. Yeah. We put all our gear in the canoe. We had to paddle to the other side of the lake. And I was excited out of my mind. I mean, that was like, oh, wow, this is like going into the wilderness. And we, it was, that's what got me going is that kind of thing, going out, being outside, um, trying things, doing things. And um, yeah, that's, I mean, the one thing people wouldn't like about the pictures, there's no life jackets because we didn't have life jackets <laughs> in those okay. days. Yeah. And yeah, the, it was really exciting and that was a big a big deal for me and it's always been that way so did your parents get you into natural history or was it just by virtue of where you lived you couldn't avoid it or? no no it was it was by parents and, and reading and this kind of an excursion but there's all these books i remember reading as a kid about dinosaurs or about snakes or about anything on earth right and that, so, so what you do, I guess I have to put it a different way. It's discovering the unknown, doing something you didn't know about. Okay. You pick up a book you haven't read before. It takes you, it welcomes you into the book and it gives you all sorts of things. I mean, various Attenborough books, you know, zoo, I, I think they were his, zoo trip to Guyana, zoo trip here, zoo trip there. And so you remember them and they still have that profound effect. And if you give kids books with pictures in them and stories in them, most kids will lap that right up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that it's, it's, so we always, our house always had books in it and reading books was just part of being there. Yeah. And, and you, so the yeah. idea that you might, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 
could have you anticipated no. at, at, at what age could have you anticipated that this was potentially going to be your career the rest of your life obviously not at oh, six you were too young God. then but you know no yeah. um well i went to university and i this roland Beschel is a professor of biology um yeah. this is me in the first cave he took well that he and i are in the bottom there yeah uh-huh. i'm just going to a cave about 1964 and then above that me in a cave that was about 63 and then the two flanking pictures there uh, with me banding bats that yeah. was when i was a graduate student so it was probably 65 66 yeah and 68 me up in a cave in puerto rico yeah. um <coughs> so at the time Beschel took me into a cave that was exciting i learned something you know meanwhile i was taking a course in entomology and i had to write an essay about bat and insect interactions so then boy that takes you into the library and into journals and kenneth roeder is another hero of mine who studied the wrote a book nerve cells and insect behavior and i was fortunate enough to hear him speak and then to meet him and then even do some work with him so always then it's you're learning something new and sometimes what you learn is new to you but sometimes what you learn is new completely so yeah. that's you're exploring that interface and yeah and you, when you go out to do something i mean it's the same as you know what are you going to what bats are you going to catch tonight well gee i don't know if i'm in some place in zimbabwe i'll have done some reading beforehand and i know what i might get but it's only when i start checking the nets and the traps that i know what we did get yes. and then the challenge is can i actually identify it so there's always another place another step you have to go up right oh now i've got it well what kind of bat is it male bat female bat adult bat so so and bat detectors of course listening to the echolocation sounds of bats wrist opens up it's opening up another world for you so i think that's what i've been i've experienced and i continue to experience i mean for example a friend of mine who's a professor of psychology paul four is at mcmaster university you know, Hamilton, Ontario has a captive colony of big brown bats. Okay. We were there, my wife Sherry and I were there on the 30th of June. His bats are having their pups now. So we have, we were taking pictures of bat pups. And just that is the transition. When do they start to fly? What's happening? And you realize in taking pictures of them, you're seeing things you didn't know about before. And it's not that they weren't doing it. It was just you hadn't you hadn't noticed it. So something as simple as driving down the highway and setting up to take pictures can lead you in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's what's ongoing. And if I talk to my friends who study insects or snakes or plants, it's always the same. Something catches your attention and it just keeps you there. Wow, wow. And, and that's you must pretty have, good. Yeah. And you've talked there about echolocation, and obviously a huge amount of your work is to do with uh, you know echolocation, communication, and bats, etc. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. How I mean, the changes that you must have seen in the bat detecting equipment between 1963 and today, it's massive. You know, oh, even you not know, even the last yeah. ten years, it's pretty massive. But going back to the 60s, oh yeah, uh, yeah. So when you think that Griffin's book, Listening in the Dark, was published in 59, that really essentially 
described echolocation, or he had described it. I think the paper was published in Science in 45, if I remember correctly. But what's also interesting about that story is that if you go back to 1794, an Italian, Lazaro Spallanzani, was yeah. curious about how bats and owls could fly in the dark. So he was working in an abbey. He brought, he had a captive owl or two and some bats that he caught in a, a steeple. And if he went into a room and then had curtains all around, those bats, would, bats and owls would fly around and never bump into anything. So one of the problems he had is he couldn't see what the hell they were doing. So he strung little bells from the ceiling on ribbons. So when the bat or the owl flew around, if it hit the bell, hit the ribbon, it rang the bell. Yeah. So when the, he set this room up, had candle in it, candles going, captive owl flies around and never rings a bell. And the bat, same thing, they fly around, fly around. He blows the candle out. He blew out the candle. Yeah. Now the bats wouldn't fly. But if you force them, well, the bats flew and they never rang the bell. The owl wouldn't fly. And if you forced it to fly, it collided with the bells. So Spallanzani found that if he blocked one of the bat's ears, it lost its ability to do this. And he said, 1794, bats can see with their ears. And of course, everybody thought that's ridiculous. And that tells us also something about science. When somebody suggests something to you that seems just ridiculous, you say, that's ridiculous. Well, it turned out that it was that became Spallanzani's bat problem, and Griffin knew about it when he was an undergraduate at Harvard in the 1930s. And he repeated the experiments that Spallanzani had done, but he used little brown bats instead of the pipistrels that Spallanzani used. And he found out what was happening. The bats were producing pulses of sound that were beyond the range of human hearing. So the flight of the bat was silent. And so what are they doing? And when you blocked one of the bat's ears, you interfered with the whole echolocation game. So Griffin said, bats use echoes of sounds they produce to locate objects in their path and coined the term echolocation. But echolocation isn't characteristic of all bats and it's not restricted to bats. A lot of toothed whales echolocate, yeah. rats echolocate. There's all sorts of things that echolocate. And it doesn't involve necessarily high frequency sound, ultrasonic sound, um, because humans echolocate and they use tongue clicks so they yeah. can hear it. It doesn't have to be ultrasonic and the birds that echolocate use clicks too that are quite audible. So in a way it just became more and more exhausting and better. So it was a guy by the name of Pierce, a physicist, had a microphone that was sensitive to high frequency sound. And when Griffin took Pierce's microphone and listened to his bats, the bats were going trip, 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 trip. And he was able to show that it was the echoes of the sounds they produced that allowed the bats to get their way around. So now I think in about, so a guy by the name of Hooper, the naturalist in the UK, Okay. Went out with a bat, Kenneth Hooper, um, can't remember all of his names. Okay. He lived outside of London, because I remember once I met him, okay. and he was using a Holgate bat detector. So, oh, Holgate bat detector, and going out and listening to bats in the neighborhood, right? So he was one of the first people that used bat detectors that way. And I remember I got a Holgate bat detector, and yeah, it opens up a new world to you. You start hearing things that you never knew were there. and. Yeah. 
So now you can get all sorts of different kinds of bath detectors associated with computers and they'll do just about everything you want. And of course they're complicated and ah, they're expensive. A lot of them are expensive, but it still is a way to introduce people to bats. So I know several programs, Bat Conservation International is an example of running several. We have parks here in Canada that are running them where people can sign out a bat detector and take it out, go for a walk and see what they hear. Yeah. And they then bring the bath detector back so that they, because they're not, I don't know, $100 each, so it's not so expensive, but it's a lot for a little operation. And they got, these things are signed up all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so we, it doesn't matter whether the people can tell what kind of bat it is. The point is there's bats there and they can hear them. Yeah, but then it's something so, I mean, about, yeah, it's something about that for them. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, but in the UK, but also in the US and all over, there's people doing big operations so they can identify as many bats as possible to see who's there. You don't have to catch them. So that minimizes the input you have, impact you have on the bats. And I think that's wonderful. I think that, I mean, there was somebody in the States, I think, was having a build-it-yourself bat detector. The UK's got a whole bunch of people doing, you know, making bat detectors. Yes. Yeah. They're just, it's wondrous. And so do it use it find out it doesn't matter if you get the damn bat right you just find out who's there right yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and do you do you yourself do you have a a go-to bat detector and a go-to software program that you tend to use more often is that a well, fair question i don't know <laughs> so i went through a whole bunch of phases with that and then i retired and I didn't have the money to keep up with all of the improvements so i have a simple bat detector of, of um, Hydrodyne that clicks when the bats go by, and that's what I use now. I I don't need the the next level, or if I might need it, except it's several thousand dollars, and I don't have several thousand dollars just lying around doing nothing. So I prefer to go places, and now I prefer to photograph bats. Can set up an infrared beam so the bat takes its own picture, and now all of a sudden, you can see things about bats that you never saw before, and. I can do that on private funds. I don't have to worry about getting someone to give me a grant. Of course, then I have to give them a report and <laughs> <laughs> you know the game, right? So yeah, this absolutely. is, yeah. these pictures, I mean, the canoe, that's 19, I don't know. Must be, must be the 1950s, is it? About I mean, 1950, yeah. And yeah, yeah. we had the bath detector by some of these other pictures and we use them, but yeah. you use them when you need them. and. Yeah. I think the most important thing they do is they allow people to see, my God, there's bats in the neighborhood and I never knew that. And certainly these places where people can sign out a bat detector and go for a walk with it, they've learned something about their surroundings. And we're finding out that bats are often, quite often doing well in cities, which we hadn't necessarily expected. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff, Brock. Uh, here's something that uh, oh, yes. you, okay. you suggested. Why don't we talk about this, Neil? And I thought, yeah, this would be absolutely brilliant to talk about uh, because this is, I suppose, the relationship between echolocation in bats and, and evolution. And evolution. And did, did these uh, two groups of bats, did they have a common ancestor or did they evolve separately? Uh, etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. would you like so, to 
give, give sure. us your, your, your take on your, your take on this. Uh, okay, it really is fascinating. Yeah. All right. So the two f pictures of the fossil the skull and the shoulder. That's a fossil from about 52 million years ago, the Green River Formation in the United States, and this this was described. The paper was in in Nature in 2008, and at that time, here you've got this bat. If you looked at its shoulders, you knew it flew. I mean, it had wings. It flew. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But could this bat echolocate? So, is echolocation something that happened early? in the beginning of bats, or is it something that bats got later, or is it some combination of that? So the problem with the, 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 the fossil, there's a little bone. If you can just, we wanna look at this little bone right here, that's yeah. going from the hyoid, and it connects to the tympanic bone. Okay. And the bone is called the stylohyle. And in about 2010, one of the undergrads working with me and a bunch of us suggest that this is really an echolocation bone because what it does is convey sound, the sound the bat produces from where it's produced in the voice box and it communicates it to the ear so the brain can register the outgoing sound because for echolocation to work, the animal has to compare what it said with what it hears because it's yeah. the difference between what it says and what it hears that allows the animal to collect the information. Now, the problem with this fossil, the bot's name is Onychonicterus finii, is it's a pancake fossil, meaning to say it's flat. Okay. So you, yeah. can, you can see the bone, yes, it's there, but yeah. you can't tell what kind of a connection it had to the tympanum, except it's lying atop it. So then you go and look at a bunch of bats in the museum, and you use micro-CT scanning of specimens that are perverted, preserved in fluid, and you can see this in three-dimensional. It turns out that well, I have to back up one step. In bats, there's 1,400 different kinds of bats in the world living. Okay. And the flying foxes are the fruit bats of the old world, Africa, Asia, Australia. And they have dog-like faces. This is one right here. This is an epauletted fruit bat. Yeah. And these bats, the tympanic bone doesn't contact, or the stylohyl bone doesn't contact the tympanum. But all other bats, it does, especially bats that produce their echolocation calls in their voice box. That's from the larynx, so it's called laryngeal. So now, the question is, did the pteropodids, the flying foxes, the old world fruit bats, were they part of the evolution of bats or do they represent a separate lineage? And uh, for the longest time, until about 2000, say, people said all of the bats are either megachoroptera, which are the flying foxes and their relatives, and they don't echolocate for the most part, or microchoroptera because they're smaller, and they do echolocate. Yes. Yeah. And the 2008 papers, paper in Nature, doesn't know. We don't know which way that goes. So then these people... Um, the paper that was published in Nature in January 2022 yeah. had been looking at the anatomy of the auditory system and found Rosenthal's canals. And you can't see Rosenthal's canal on any of those four bats, even though they've got them. Yeah. And it turned out that, that in fact, 
the pteropodids, the flying foxes in there, they also have them, but they're not specialized the way all the other bats are. So to make a long story short, this paper that was in Nature in 2022 shows that bats have a common ancestor. So all bats are the same. And it shows that echolocation is probably something that they had from the beginning. Okay. And in my opinion, but not everybody's, echolocation was the key because it allowed bats access to flying insects. A lot of flying insects around, but if you're mostly birds, you can't do much about them. You can do something about it if you're spiders, but spiders don't have the high metabolic rate that birds do. Okay. So now this paper, and I wrote a little opinion piece about it, shows us that yes, bats evolved from one ancestor. I think it makes the case that yes, echolocation was a primitive situation in bats. It shows us the flying foxes, the pteropodids have mostly lost the ability to echolocate. Okay. And so now all of a sudden we have all sorts of answers here and it affects the classification of bats. And it, it again, is, it's magic because these Rosenthal's can also have been there all the time. It's not like they only, you know, jumped into the bats a couple of years ago. They've been there since before the, before the Eocene, more than 50 million years ago. And I think it answers a question it also shows us when you look closely at something, you see things you didn't see before. Yeah, it's not that yeah. they weren't there, it's just that you didn't see them. And I think that's pretty magical. Um, there are some people who still refer to megabats and microbats, and this gets us back into the thicket of common names and scientific names. Yes. Uh, that yeah. Since 2000, we'll say, when uh, Emma Teeling from Ireland basically suggested that the classification of bats should be different. And it's now the way it appears for after this work. Um, we're, we're always haunted by old names, right? And, and yes. old names don't always go away. And yes. the trouble is when people use them, if they say, oh, the megabats, well, the megabats, that's a term that, I mean, some of the little bats are bigger than the big, the little, anyway, so it doesn't work. Anyway, so to me, this is an absolutely seminal paper about bat echolocation, and it shows us things about the evolution of bats we didn't know. And it shows that just good old-fashioned observation and detail often tells the story. So that's why I think that paper is so important. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really so neat. And be, so when I was asked to write this opinion piece by Nature, I, I chose these pictures because there weren't any pictures of bats in the other paper. Yeah. So I perfectly picked different kinds of bats and say right in the caption, you can't see the Rosenthal's canals, but if you had the equipment and the bat specimen, you could find them. And so it, I think that's pretty important. And I also thought, like I'm sure many other people, that what would tell the tale about learning unraveling evolution of bats would be a fossil. Somebody would find a fossil, right? And of course, there's probably a lot of fossils in museums that are actually bats, but you don't know they're bats because all you've got is bits of tooth and jaw or okay, bone. Yeah. Whereas yeah. these, this fossil, Anichonicterus, it's all there. You can see everything. So, yeah, and it again tells us that technology can open doors for us. It also tells us that you have to be open-minded. And just because you thought something was true doesn't mean it is. Yeah. Anyway, it's great. And that's one of the great things about bats.
yeah but fascinating fascinating to hear to hear your uh you know your you know your thoughts on 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 this you know absolutely fascinating thank you um yeah um so published published books and goodness yes. uh you've had you've had quite a few um I mean which I mean there's probably one or two I haven't even included here from uh you know to be fair uh, I've got a couple myself in the background there I've got the uh, communication in the Coroptera and I've got the bat bioacoustics book so these yeah. are books I've referred to uh you know in the in the past um but, was this a highlight getting your first book published? Because uh, your first book getting published would have been some time ago. Well, this was yeah. it's 1983. It's just bats. Okay. Yeah. And the I don't know University of Toronto Press. One of the people there want to write a book. Sure. And there's hardly any pictures in there because it wasn't supposed to be a picture book. Um, okay. This one here is 1992, so it's like almost. 10 years later okay and somebody from the publisher which was fax on file phoned me up and said they wanted a book they wanted a book about bats they wanted a lot of pictures and i said no oh, yeah there's a lot of books around no no we want a lot of pictures and so that that's where that went um this the recent advances the communication of the corruptor the bat ecology 50 years of research yeah um Bat bioacoustics, those are all pretty much fact books about bats. If there was courses about bats, they'd be textbooks. And that's true also of bats, uh, world of science and mystery. Yes. But there's another audience too, and the other audience is the bat or bats. Um, those are intended to draw people into the excitement of bats. So it's the same as a general book about turtles or snakes or insects. They're not designed or intended to be fact books but they can deliver a lot of facts and they can draw people in to me an important part is having pictures and i think that you're in an ideal book you have no page two page spread that doesn't have at least one picture in it okay. and you want to fix it so when people look at it they see the picture and then they read about it so you start that you have to go to page 200 to read when you're sitting on page 20. yeah so yeah. those are things that that's why the pictures are so important and yeah. it adds a different element if you've taken your own pictures or if you're just using no i mean if you're using someone else's pictures yeah yeah because you can you know the story behind the picture if it's your own picture absolutely right? yes yeah. And, and yeah that also if it's a kid that's reading it perhaps the kid thinks well perhaps i can do that and yeah. this is why museum exhibits and everything are so important yeah and that kind of takes us on to oh, yes this, yeah that this is coming out and i've been i've been very fortunate P pelagic asked me if i would be one of the i suppose the reviewers of this uh and i was i was quite shocked actually when he asked me to review a book by yourself and jens i thought what really i don't know if i'm uh i don't know if i'm uh, you know worthy of that but but anyway uh, that meant i got to see what i've been given uh, an early PDF copy of the book and I've read it and it's coming out at the moment it's scheduled to come out in September this really was a fascinating read and full of interesting pictures and stories and accounts by yourself and Jens and 
uh, things that you know and things that you don't know and things like this, you know. Um, now, you've kind of tagged it, making bats more accessible to the average reader. But I've got to say that even as somebody that knows a bit about bats, there was stuff in here that, that I was learning or I was getting a different perspective on. Do you want to talk a little bit about this? Uh, I mean, obviously, sadly, Jens is no longer with us. Yeah. Um, so you might want to say a few words about Jens as well. I mean, give us a bit of a backdrop to this. Yeah. Okay, so I've known Jens for years because we were both interested in bats. We were working often on the same kinds of things. And we worked together in different places. Um, gee, um, places in Belize or Mexico, but also in um, Kadzooks, Cuba and Jamaica. And we would go together, each doing our own thing. And he had showed me, it was actually in an old line near Renfrew, Ontario, how to use beams to get the bass to take their own pictures. And that would have been in the mid, the early 90s. Right. So I started using that a lot. And then we were working on several projects together. One was about identifying bats from photographs. What we would do is set up a camera system so when the bat arrived, it took its own picture. And that gave you a record of what species of bats had come to that cave or site, whatever it was, and when. And so we were doing that. And then we thought, well, it might be kind of a neat idea to do a bat. And he had done some work with Pelagic, uh, often providing them pictures of bats for books they were publishing on bats. So we started this book. And it was the idea was to take our stories and our pictures and just explore bats the way we had been doing so for a lot of years. And so then he unfortunately died, unexpectedly a heart attack. And so fortunately, one of his former students was, was Johan Akloff was able to give me access to a, Jens's, a good part of Glenn's collection of photographs so that the book is photographs and stories that, you know, reflecting what Jens and I have done together. Um, Gee, I'm trying to think when we first worked together, probably in the early 1990s. And okay. over the over time, we've spent a lot of time just talking shop about, shop about bats, how to get pictures. And so we were trying to get as much diversity of bats as possible. And between us, we, that covered quite a lot of bats. And then uh, stories, you know, how do you find this out? How do you find that out? And so even in the course of doing the book, you discover more things and you start writing about more things. And I, it's, it epitomizes the whole idea. You're not just trying to accumulate facts. You're, it becomes part of a story. And then if, at the beginning of the book, Johan had been trying to get Jens to write a book about bats. And he didn't want really to write about, you know, people, he wanted to write about bats. And he said that, he, you know, if you look at a Jens picture, there's often a bat flying somewhere down an alley or something. There's all this graffiti in the alley. He doesn't scrub it out. He leaves it in because it's part of the scene. You have a bat flying out of a pit toilet in Africa. Pretty obvious what the bat's doing. And, yeah. oh, well, so it's where you end up going. It's a meander. So we call it a miscellany because it is a miscellaneous collection, but it could also be called a meander. Okay. Because you go yeah. here, you go there, and you always trying to get a better picture, and bats lend themselves to that. Because we've since, well, one of the things, I mean, apart from the Rosenthal's canals, 
people who start using very high-end tags for marking baths, tags, the you know, GPS tags, and now all of a sudden you can know, you know, you put the tag on the bat, if you can get the tag back, get the data back, you know where the bat went. Yeah. And then there's other tags that will register the bat's passage. It could be a pit tag that you put under the skin, as people do for their bats, so that if they get lost, they might get found. Um, but you, a lot of people are doing that with other animals in the wild. And so now all of a sudden you're finding that bats are doing things you never imagined. So okay. yeah. if I go back to my own work on bands, oh, this would be like, I started banding bats, say in 64. And I remember in 66, in December, going to an old mine at the North Shore of Lake Superior in Canada, and we banded some bats in the cave. It was a mine, rather. And then that August, so from December 66 to August 67, okay. we found one of those bats 500 miles away in a different wow. site, right? Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then a month later, the bat was back <laughs> where it had been 500 miles away. And you look at that and you think, gee, I must have read the number wrong. So now yeah. <laughs> people are putting the tags on and they find out that there's, these things are happening. So it's called, they're called MOTIS tags to measure movement. And they put them on butterflies, all sorts of little animals, but also big animals. And the animal moves by a sensor, the sensor records the animal. And they're finding that little brown myotis, little brown bats that weigh about eight grams, may be traveling couple hundred kilometers a night. And who would have thought that? Right. 200 wow. kilometers a night. The animal only weighs eight grams. So yeah. it opens your eyes. And then really important is work that's been happening in Israel. They've been, they've discovered that Egyptian fruit bats have cognitive maps. So they know where they are. They know where they live. They know where the food is. Yeah. And their home range may be 60 kilometers squared, which is pretty big for a 150 gram animal, right? Yeah. So yeah. Now, all of a sudden, wow, there's all these things that bats are doing that we didn't think they could do. And so, again, it opens your eyes and makes you realize that these animals, as small as they may be, may have stories of movement and the way they use space that are completely unexpected. Probably not really. People probably suspected it, but they just had no way to show it. Yeah. I think I'm right in saying you talked about the Egyptian fruit bats there. Uh, is that the same research that they established that when the baby was traveling? That's right. Yep. Others, it was it was learning. Uh, that's right. You know, and that's a yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a lovely study that there's two teams at the University of Tel Aviv in Israel. They have a captive colony of bats that live inside but can go out every night. They 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 just use the quarters for a roost. Okay. And they've been able to follow them from their first flights, the young. They've showed that it takes about 60 days for a young bat to learn its home range, at least part of its home range. And it's really exciting. Then in, in the United States, um, Mexico, in the United States, some nectar feeding bats, they put pit tags, the tags that go into the skin, and they find bats that are traveling a couple hundred kilometers a night to get to the flowers they need for, to get the nectar and pollen. So yeah. it, it's, so Donald Griffin, sort of the father of echolocation, had written a book in 68, published it in, no, 78, what year? I have to remember. Must have been 78. Okay. The Question of Animal Awareness. 
And the whole idea, are animals aware of what they're doing? And people tend to think, well, we're the only ones that do that. But um, Griffin said, if you don't think that your animal is aware, your experiments will never show that it is. Yeah, because you yeah. won't have your eyes open to what might be happening. So yeah. again, there's just so many different stories. Bats are small, but they get around a lot. And they may be much more, well, of course, the vampire bats are the winners when it comes to social organizations. Yeah. The three different kinds of vampires, we know most about common vampires. They need a blood meal every night, the adults do. Yeah. And that's about two tablespoons of blood. So they're only going to get it from fairly large animals because there's no bat that would have that much blood in it. Yeah. So it's eating, feeding on people and cattle and horses and pigs and all sorts of animals in the bush. And yeah. the bat, if it comes home without successfully feeding, it can beg blood from one of its friends. And the friend is just somebody it roosts with. It may be a, a relative or it may just be a friend. And wow. Who would have thought that? And yeah. it's a very sophisticated social organization that, that hinges on individual recognition. Yeah. So there are 100 bats hanging there may look like 100 bats to you, but it's actually a bunch of people, you know, like a bunch of individuals. Yeah. And they've got I'm, relationships with each other. And, absolutely. And, and I then suppose it's, you know, when it comes to the vampire bat story, uh, you're getting food from your friend tonight but tomorrow night you may have to you might have to be paid blood yeah. if it's vampires yeah. it's blood yeah and blood yeah yeah so yeah and there there are now tags that'll measure proximity each animal has a tag when it get, they get close together it sends a different signal so we can now look at these animals and see things that we never saw before and i think that's great yeah. but it also to find that a bat the size, of, well, it'll be the same size as a dolphin's bat in the UK or Europe. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That they're going a couple hundred kilometers a night. Now, if you're trying to plan a conservation operation for them, you have to, it's not just protecting this house or that cave or that mine or that tree. It may be that it's a much bigger area you have to think about protecting because the animal, all those areas may be important to the animals. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Absolutely. Your reference to food is quite uh, quite relevant because this is a, these are a couple of pictures that come from the new book. Ah, oh, uh, yes. Go, go, go and explain what's going on here. Seems that seems like there's an awful lot of pizza being consumed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So one of the things about bats, they're small animals, but they eat a lot of food. So yeah. it's been known for some time that an adult female bat that's nursing, producing milk needs to eat more than her body weight in insects every night, if it's an insectivorous bat, just to cover her costs. Yeah. And that, you can say that to somebody think, oh, your own weight, no, that's ridiculous, right? And then a, an adult male bat, who probably doesn't have much to do with being a parent except providing sperm, eats half his body weight in insects a night. Right. So I remember several years ago, I was trying to convince McDonald's it was to let me get some pictures of kids holding hamburgers, you know, and no, oh, didn't want that. So meanwhile, so the parents of Ben and Eleanor in the picture here, yeah. I was talking to them about the idea. They said, well, we should just use pizzas. So Ben, age three, is sitting beside his weight in pizzas. Okay. Eleanor, who's age six or seven, is sitting beside her weight in pizzas. Okay. So if you think of yourself as a bat, 
a little brown bat or a big brown bat. You've got to go out and eat that much food every night. And even if it's your favorite food, like pizza, that's a hell of a lot of pizza. Yeah. So I just like the picture because it gives a graphic representation of just what that means. Now, there's a whole bunch of physiological and other operations that make it interesting how bats achieve that because that is an awful lot of food to move through. Yes. And so it, it, it's a good way to make the point because often people don't think, oh, well, so eat your own. But then you say to somebody, how much do you weigh? What's your favorite food? What's, and they're not going to do that. For not, they're not going to do that for sure. So I love those two pictures because they do make the point. We'll probably to get all the pizza boxes from. Somebody didn't go and buy this many pizza pizzas for the Well, pizza. no, we had a, this is a, uh, so High Park in Toronto. Okay. Has a, a cafe and they sell pizzas, so they lent us a bunch of pizza boxes. Okay, okay. So we could do the pictures because, it, it, yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> Just, it's great. Amazing stuff. Right, so we're getting towards the end uh, of the session and as we sometimes do with our talking bat guests, we offer to make a charitable donation on their behalf. And uh, Brock has asked us to make a donation to Bat Conservation International, which is something we will do over the next uh, week or so. And when we do that, we'll also uh, make mention of Brock and BCI via our various social media outlets, etc., just to give them uh, a bit of a plug, etc. So uh, thanks for that, uh, Brock. Um, do you want to say anything about BCI? Oh, so there are many, many bats around the world, and there's lots of people that are interested in them. And organizations such as Bat Conservation International are making strenuous efforts to make things better for bats, and that's partly education, it's partly discovering new things about bats, recently a new species of, of bats in Africa, uh, was discovered through the work of Bat Conservation International. Um, it's hard, I think, I know most about Bat Conservation International because I've had more to do with them, but their work ranges from research to protecting habitat, for protecting species that are endangered, to collecting more information about bats, and to education. And to me, that scope of operation is really important. and. I know in the UK and in many places in Europe, but elsewhere in the world as well, there are lots of other people and they are not competitors with among each other. They, they are in fact working together and sharing information. So to me, that's another, that's is something that can bring people together. That's yeah. something that can bring people together and that's to share the excitement of it. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Thank you. And obviously, when we make that donation, we will make it uh, clear to BCI, you know, that it was your request that we did that. And Okay. Well, thank you very much. And I really appreciate this. Yeah, listen, I mean, we haven't really touched upon uh, what you got up to when you're not doing bat work. Do you have any other hobbies or interests or, or anything that you do? Or is it or is it just wall-to-wall -wall bats? I mean, what's... Yeah. Well, there's a lot of reading involved. Um, yeah. We've been doing... Sherry and I have been doing a lot of photography of bats, but also of birds. And yeah. it's what's it gives you something to do. I mean, we were toiling in the garden on the weekend. So there's always something else to do. And 
another picture to take, uh, something to learn from the pictures. Yeah. So we were taking pictures of these fledging, or not quite fledging, but almost flying bats that were more than three weeks ago. Yeah. And one of the things I hadn't paid much attention to before was the way bats groom themselves because they use their hind feet and they comb up their fur. Okay. And they're very fastidious about that. But then I was watching them and they're, they're doing this combing and they leave quite distinct grooves in the fur, which I hadn't seen before because I hadn't looked. Okay. And the other thing that we noticed about bats is when they're flying, if you look at a picture of a flying bat, its toenails are tight, tight together, right? Okay. Yeah. And yeah. when they're grooming their fur, they're like this, but they're also like this when they're trying to hang up somewhere. So okay. that's uh, so. So it's a who cares moment, but it just reminds you you have to look closely at what's happening if you're going to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's back to that. It's just back to that. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Full circle. Yeah. 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 So you woke up this morning and you thought, uh, I've got to do this talking bat interview. <laughs> How's it been for you? Has it been all right? It's been wonderful. No, it's great. I mean, the thing is that I'd shared information with you before. And I mean, the thing is that I just, I'm a bat person. I've been a bat person for a long time. I great, huge, a lot of pressure, pleasure from it. Um, it's just, yeah, it's part of your life, right? Yes. And I don't think that will it'll stay there for a while anyway yeah no absolutely absolutely well no, i hope I you've enjoyed it as well oh absolutely i i've i've been doing bats nowhere near as long as you have okay i've been doing bats for almost 30 years and and you're someone that i've been aware of throughout so you must time. know david pie too right um, or know of david pie yeah i know of but i don't uh, never never met him yeah. no paul no. racy yes i know paul yes okay uh, yeah, um, uh, Paul. Paul actually did a talking about interview for us a few months ago. Okay, uh, so yeah, yeah. So I've been on, Jones. There's a whole bunch of them. Right? Yeah, yeah. Very fortunate to be on a, a couple of courses that Paul Racy was involved in teaching, yeah. and that was very early days for me. Yeah. But it was uh, amazing stuff. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, and yeah. these people, they're all. It's all the same route, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. But you know. We asked you to do this and you agreed and i've got to say we were just so delighted that you agreed to do it okay and well i just want I, to say that really appreciate it and okay. and thanks for your time you know, it's okay been, it's been wonderful and i've i've learned some stuff and i'm sure anybody listening uh will have also learned and been inspired uh, by your thoughts and your perspectives so thank you okay and thank you hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to betability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.